before we get started, I need you to do me one favor. Pull out your phone and text this number, 501-214-4307. I just want to text you a couple of times a week, send you some fun messages, videos, just to encourage you on your unconventional journey. Again, all you got to do is text 501-214-4307. I just want to be your friend, y'all. Just text me. We want people not to go into shame or guilt, but to go into responsibility. So if you realize that you have a bias... You don't have to beat yourself up for it. You don't have to, doesn't make you a terrible person. You didn't choose to learn that bias. You grew up in a culture that taught it to you. However, you do have a responsibility. I've always felt immense fear. I was born with several palsy. I have always felt small. I was told not to take risks. I may be blind, but I teach people how to see. And I'm proud to be an individual. This podcast is for you, the unconventional leader. Maybe you are the one that everyone discounted. Maybe you struggle with fear and self-doubt. We are here to empower the next generation of self-starters to step up. Use their voice and make an impact in this world. Being accused of being a racist is worse than being a racist in some people's minds. That comes from today's guest. Howard Ross. And if this is your first time listening, my name is Heather Parody. I am your host. And today, my friends, we have a powerful, timely interview for you today. If you're listening to this in the future, it is June of 2020. And there is a lot going on in our world and in our country. If you live in the States, a lot of rioting going on and conversation around social justice and racism. And you know, growing up, I don't know about you, this was not something that we talked about. It was something that was considered impolite and, quote, not an issue. And as we are seeing, it is an issue. It's always been an issue. And people need to talk about it. We need to have some of these hard conversations, these uncomfortable conversations, because without it, nothing is exposed and nothing can actually truly change. I actually recorded this interview a few weeks ago, and I'm so glad that it's coming out now. Howard Ross is a lifelong social justice advocate and is considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He specializes in the synthesis of neurocognitive and social science research in direct application in diversity, inclusion, equality, and accessibility work. Howard's writings have been published in Harvard Business School, The Washington Post, New York Times, Fast Company, et cetera, et cetera. He's won insane amount of awards. I could go on and on, but what's really powerful is his passion and love for this work comes from his own family's story, which he shares with us today. He's going to share with us why the need to belong is tearing us apart, how we can take personal responsibility in navigating change, and how even though we're never going to fully get rid of biases in our lives, yes, friends, we all have them. We can learn how to become more aware of them and intentional with how we respond. And before you click off and say, you know what, Heather, this doesn't apply to me. It applies to every single one of us. And if we are leaders. This is something that we need to constantly be learning about and being intentional with if we really want to make a difference in this world. Make sure you connect with Howard Ross at howardjross.com. Pick up his latest book, Our Search for Belonging. All of that is linked in the show notes. And hey, if you know someone who would enjoy this conversation, please take a screenshot and share Howard's message with them. Thank you for helping us educate unconventional leaders all over the world by sharing out this episode. Let's go ahead and get into this. Our 
our need to belong is tearing us apart with Howard Ross. I um, I grew up in the post-war world. I was born in January 1951, and um, I grew up in a Jewish family that had, you know, my grandparents had immigrated to this country in the early part of the 20th century, and pretty much all of the family we left behind in Europe were murdered by the Nazis. And so we know, for example, the 43 members of our family died on August 2nd and 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis killed all but 100 of the 5,000 Jews who lived in the community in the western Ukraine that my grandfather grew up in. So, And my grandparents, uh, my grandfather on my mother's side and my grandmother on my father's side were activists. My grandmother on my father's side was the organizer of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. My grandfather, uh, my mother's father, was um, the person who, who was one of the founders of the NAACP in Baltimore and was also one of the organizers of the group that, put the, that purchased the Exodus ship in Baltimore Harbor. So, so the message growing up was very clear, and that is bad things can happen and you're supposed to do something about it. That was very much the ethos of our family. So both of my sisters and I sort of became our family business. We like to say my older sister became one of the nation's leading immigration lawyers. My younger sister spent many years um, as as uh, Marion Wright Edelman's fundraiser to Children's Defense Fund, and since then has done a lot of work with social justice organizations. I started my career as a teacher with very young children, and then quickly moved into being interested in organizations, and at the same time had been involved in civil rights since I was about 15 years old. So the two things came together in the 80s when the diversity movement movement started to take hold. And so I started to do work around that. And I've been, been an amazing experience because I've had 30 years of doing what I love to do and figuring out a way to get paid for it. So it's been a great wow. way to have a career. You know, as, as, a, as a parent, you know, my daughters are starting to ask some questions about different things. And I was just wondering, like growing up in that environment, and those are some pretty heavy things to deal with, you know, not only from like a personal standpoint, but also to the activism side, yeah. starting at your 15 years old. Did that feel like a weight and a burden to you at that age? Like, how did you conceptualize that world? You know, find kind of your own passion for that. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. Um, you know, I, I think as, as, a, as a 15-year-old, you know, I think you do what's right. You know, you do what you think is right. I think that the truth is, you know, when I ask, when people ask me a more simplified version of of the story. It's basically, you know, I was raised right. My parents were very clear to us, even though they were depression kids. So they were really focused on the family and taking care of the family, keeping us safe. And my dad had had been in the war and came back and went right to working to, you know, all that stuff. But from our standpoint, I think the message that we got is that, you know, this is something to do. Now, I, I also happen to be a, a product of my times. And that is like, you know, I grew up in the 60s. And so it was also the thing that friends were doing. And, you know, a lot of us were in that together, very much like what's happening with college campuses today. And I think that, um, you know, that, that actually ties very clearly into the, the theme of the book. And that is, you know, we, we want to be part of groups. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And for me, the part of bigger than myself was the movement times of the 60s and then the 70s and, and really since then. But that was what really defined me. And it's interesting because uh, we just went through a week of uh, reminiscing because it's now 50 years since um, since the big campus terminal started after after uh, President Nixon invaded Cambodia. And so some of my friends from college who I haven't talked to in years and years have been sort of trading stories and pictures and the like. And you know, it's 50 years ago, but that was what we were doing on college campuses. Wow. So. How, is, how is the climates different from that time period versus right now? You know, it's always, I, I think memory is an interesting thing. And having been somebody who's, who's studied neuroscience research for a good part of my career, I realized that our memories are constantly reshaping themselves. And, and most of what we remember isn't exactly how it happened. So I, so I preface what I'm saying with that. But I do have a sense that, that there was more of a sense of hope and possibility in the 60s, even though we were fighting against 
you know, the Vietnam War and racism and, you know, all these kinds of things. There was a sense that there was a new future available. I'm not sure that um, that young people today have that sense. I mean, I think an awful lot of people, young people I talk to today are far more cynical and resigned and fighting against something that they don't see the answer to. And I completely understand. I mean, you know, the fact that we could be in this place after all of that stuff that we did, and we're back into this same place where we um, where we have, you know, national leaders who who encourage white supremacy and who encourage racial, you know, racial branding and all this kind of stuff is, is very sad and frustrating. And I think the challenge is that anger is one thing, you know, we get angry at things, but I think rage is a particular quality of anger. And it's when you have anger and helplessness at the same time, the sense that there's nothing's going to change. And I think that we're on, you know, if we're not careful, we're on the verge of rage. And, um, yeah. and rage can be incredibly destructive, as we've seen a lot of times in our, in our history. Where does, where does the anger piece come in? In grad school, we had one class on multiculturalism. And I remember the very first day, you could feel the energy in the room. It was so tense. And even just throughout the semester, it really defensive. It's like, I'm not biased. I don't, you know, I don't have prejudice against people. And it was just, it was a very different class. And I was wondering, like, where does that anger come from within us? It's a great question, but I think that the, um, I think for an awful lot of people, you know, we look at history, and particularly for those people who are in non-dominant groups or groups that have been victims of oppression in society, whether it's African Americans or Latinx people or women or LGBTQ people or whoever. Um, at some point, people's patience runs thin, and um, when you know we've had now, you know, I mean, the Brown versus Board of Education was 1954. Um, you know, that's <laughs> that's 66 years ago. And we still have the kind of overt racism we see now. We still have people dying. You know, we still have the Ahmed Arbery case that, of course, I'm sure you're very much in the middle of, given that it's right there in Georgia. Um, we still have these cases come up routinely where, you know, black men, usually sometimes even women, are either you know, shot, killed, or incarcerated unfairly, you know, we still look at COVID-19 and see how African Americans are having more than twice as many cases of death per population base as white folks. And and that's not an accident. I'm, you know, I, I posted something recently, Heather, um, on social media, and I just said, can we please stop calling this an equal opportunity? You remember people were saying this was an equal opportunity thing, everybody's affected, but it's not, you know, where people and so I got a response from somebody who said, "Well, that's just stupid. You know, viruses aren't racist." And and my point is, no, of course viruses aren't racist. But maybe a good way to look at it is, the virus is a seed, and that seed can go into two different gardens. And one of those gardens is fertilized and tilled and got water and and sunlight, and the other garden is is baked clay with with none of those things. The seed is going to grow more in one garden than garden in another. And the truth is that that systemic racism in our society is a perfect garden for things like COVID to grow. And and there are lots of different ways that that happens. But I think people see that. And at some point, um, when there's no hope for the future, the anger builds and the frustration builds and it turns into rage. And that's when you get some people's mindset is just blow the whole thing up. And I think that that's, you know, that's a very dangerous place to get to because uh, people without hope don't have much place to go. You said something interesting earlier. You, you talked about fighting against something, which kind of has this separation of us and them. And your book, which I really wanted to dig into, our search yeah. for belonging, how our need to connect is tearing us apart. What a what a mm -hmm. statement. Can you dig into that a little bit? Like sure. our, our need to belong, how is that tearing us apart? Well, I think first of all, <clears throat> one of the things we talk about in the book, and I want to also acknowledge John Robert Tartaglione, who 
So I mentee of mine who did a lot of the great research for the book, helped with a lot of the research. I think that, that human beings, just as an essence of who we are, are social animals. And, um, and this is undoubtedly goes back to survival instinct. You know, for most of human history, you couldn't make it by yourself. You know, we're getting to a point now where you can kind of function pretty much on your own because of a lot of support mechanisms. But for most of human history, you can't. Not to mention the fact that every human being is born into dependency. Mm. You know, human babies need to be taken care of for longer than most other animals on the planet. And so the first couple of years of our lives, the message we all get is, I exist because you exist. You know, whether it's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, or the orphan, is somebody has to be taking care of us. <clears throat> and so that need to fit in is essential to our survival. Uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, which, you know, Abraham Maslow created back in 1943 and is considered to be one of the seminal um, models to modern psychology. You know, he says you start with physiological needs and then safety needs and then belonging. And then self-esteem and finally self-actualization. But we're realizing now that Maslow was probably wrong, that the most important human need we have is to fit in. And the challenge we have in today's society is that as we've gotten polarized, um, it's no longer fitting in for something as many times as not, it's fitting in against something. So we're, we're, mm. we're, we're joining this group against that other group. And, and it's gotten really worse and worse. I mean, it used to be that we, we existed in kind of a bell curve where most people were in the middle and we'd have differences. So for example, you and I might say, well, we agree on gun rights, but we disagree on civil rights, but we agree on foreign policy, but we disagree on economic policy. I mean, that was pretty much the norm for most of, most of American history if we went back at it. Um, not all the time. Obviously, we had a civil war at one point, but over the course of modern history, mostly that's the dynamic that we've existed in. Now we've gone from that bell curve to a dumbbell curve where everybody's on the ends and nobody's in the middle. Yeah. And um, it's no longer, I agree with you about this and I disagree with you about that. It's now you're one of those kind of people. And, and we see it even in the way this whole COVID thing again has played out. You know, we see that they're the people who support, you know, Trump and that's on one side and the people who are against on the other side and how we believe about disease falls into those categories and how we believe it should play out in terms of the lockdown or the rollout or whatever else goes in that category and the red states do it this way and the blue states do it that way it's to the point where it's almost like we're in in um, rival sports teams where everything we do has to be to support ours and denigrate the other and it's understandable i mean you know i can find myself slipping into it easily as well if we're not careful um but it's um but it does bring up this sense of tribalism at a level that most of us have not seen uh, in our lifetimes what do we do with that? Well, I think that there are a number of things. I mean, I think first of all, one of the most important things that I that I try to say to people is to separate um, the particular political candidate or the personality from the, necessarily the people who voted for them. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think there's anything wrong with with um, criticizing and um, you know going after a candidate for office or somebody who's in office because part of being a politician is you sign up for that. I think it's, you know, it's, most politicians in history have understood that. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the challenge is right now, now in President Trump is somebody who, who's particularly thin-skinned about that. He's, he's more sensitive to criticism than most people are. I think, you know, there's a lot of retribution for that kind of a thing. But um, but generally speaking, that's part of the game. You know, you run for president, people are going are gonna to yeah. criticize you. But making assumptions that every person who voted for whichever candidate, whether it's in the last election, Trump or Clinton, in this election, Trump or Biden, 
Biden is problematic because, you know, as you know, one of the things I did for the book is I went out and interviewed um, a, a lot of Trump voters because I tend to be on the other side of the political spectrum and ended up being well over 100 people. And I found that, for example, most of them actually said that they voted more against Clinton than they voted for Trump or they voted for a particular issue or they, they said, well, you know, I didn't really like him, but, you know, his position on abortion was more aligned with mine or his vision on gun rights was more aligned with mine or something like that. And I found that there are a lot of really good people out there who I've gotten to develop relationships with and respect more and mutual respect. And we, we don't agree on some of the political issues, but uh, but that's different than the candidates themselves. Absolutely. You know, you, you talked about, you know, systematic issues and sometimes there's dissonance between like our own personal responsibility uh, within the system. And I was just wondering, as as young leaders, we have a bunch of 20, 30-year-old leaders who are using social media, leading small teams. But where's our personal responsibility within this and what can we do? Well, I think this is really important. I think, you know, in, in a democracy, I, I believe we have, a, we have a responsibility as citizens to be participatory. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, I know a lot of times when you have, you know, we, we live in a binary political system, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, I, I personally think we'd be better off if we had more than just two parties because then you think you get a wider range of, of, um, of points of view and you also almost require collaboration and crossover in order to form a government. I think you see this in certain governments. I mean, it has its own problems as well. But our system, whether we like it or not, is, is fundamentally a binary system. It's designed for one of two parties to win and it's almost impossible for a third party to win. So, so that means that when election day comes, whether our candidate um, gets chosen or not by the particular party that we tend to be inclined towards, you know, the choice is going to be between those two people. So sitting out and being an observer is is kind of a passive way to participate in that process. Um, I mean, I guess there are people who sometimes really do genuinely believe there's no difference between two candidates. But more times than not, when I have conversations with people like that, it's not that they really believe that. They're just frustrated their candidate didn't get it. And because their candidate is not as close um, as they would like them to be, then they forget all that other stuff. And I think that that in the long run, that's how you see phenomenon like the Jill Stein phenomenon or the Ralph Nader phenomenon back in 2000 or things like this that end up you know, throwing monkey wrenches in, in the election. And, um, and then the very people who sat out are the ones who complain most about the results sometimes. I want to dig more into this idea of belonging. I was wondering sure. if there's a way to um, kind of switch that uh, that internal need to belong into something that's uh, maybe positive and something that we could use mm -hmm. proactively. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that first of all, um, you know, we know this is, this is more than just, you know, like touchy-feely stuff we're talking about here. There's brain science sure. behind this. We know sure. that the human brain is designed to interact with different people. We produce mm -hmm. in our premotor cortex mirror neurons, which are designed to have a sense of what's going on with other people. And the reason is because we are safer when we're with people who we can align with. Um, if you put yourself, as I said before, in the early stages of human development, if you if you were cast out by your tribe, you didn't survive very long. You didn't have anybody to help protect you from animals. If you got mm -hmm. sick or you hurt yourself, you died and, and, and that sort of thing. And in fact, um, we know that um, the earliest signs of civilization they found were people who had um, who had things like broken legs when they found their bodies that had healed. Because if you had a broken leg that healed, that meant that you had to have somebody who took care of you. You had to have somebody who hunted for you. You or something like that. Um, in most cases, in earlier stages, um, when they find when they find the bones and the remains of people 
often the leg was freshly broken and that was where they died because their, their leg had been broken and they died and got killed by an animal or something like that. So, so, so we know that we need each other at a very deep level, both, both in terms of physical support, but, but even more so for emotional and psychological support. And, um, and that's really encoded into us. And, you know, we know that there are certain people who don't, but, you know, you think of people like Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, you know, being, being this sort of isolated, um, you know, person, people who, who, live by themselves. Very rare. I mean, there are people who are very, very introverted who like to spend more time by themselves, but that doesn't mean they have no contact with any other human being. So belonging becomes essential to how to how we exist. And if you think about it, for most people, the jobs that they've liked the most are jobs when they've had great relationships with the people they work with and great relationships with their, their boss because they felt like they were part of it. Um, my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Jeanette Cole, likes to say that diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is being allowed to dance. I like to say belongings when we actually get to choose some of the music. We have a say over the world that we're living in. And so it's really a very democratic concept if you think about it in those sense, in that sense, that we're a part of the we're not we're not an adjunct to the institution that we're dealing with whether it's society government business or anything else we're actually fully a part of it and i think that um mm. it's not enough just to be included in somebody else's domain i think there are a lot of women for example in business who have found that you can be successful in business as long as you act more like the men yeah. but that's very different than being able to be fully yourself and being engaged yep in, in mm -hmm. the organization. And so that's what we're really looking for is can we create organizations, can we create a society in which everybody feels that sense of belonging, they feel that sense of connection and wholeness. You said earlier about this idea of hope and how uh, this generation seems like they don't have the hope that they once had. I was wondering how could we restore that? Yeah. Well, I think I think we have a long way to go. I mean, obviously, one one way is to um, is to reestablish integrity in our institutions. You know, to to yeah. you know move from a political system right now that's built on you know lying. Really, I mean, mm -hmm. at, at an astonishing level. I think the last number I saw there's a there's a there's a truth checker or fact checker thing that that is up to like fifteen thousand lies that the president has told since he's been in office, and that's not to suggest that there aren't lies on the other side either. You know that people sometimes tell lies on the other side, but I think people look at this. In fact, trust a word that's coming out of anybody's mouth. It's hard to be hopeful when you can't trust a word that's coming out of your leader's mouths. I think. Um, I think that the other thing is um, when we see these persistent social problems, mm -hmm. and we talked about racism before, sexism, uh, homophobia, any of these kinds of problems that persist over years and years and years of people struggling to fight them, and, and we don't really resolve the issues. So, you know, I tend to be an optimist um, by my nature, but it's it's easy to see how people can look at the world today and see it's it seems like we've been on the steady decline in terms of social cohesion for, for many, many years. And you mentioned social media before, and, you know, we know that the, the difference in our media structures contributes to that too, because when I was growing up, you know, I, I, I say that, I hesitate to say that, it sounds like my grandparents saying, you know, we used to walk 50 miles to school. I don't think, you know, but, but the truth is that when I was growing up, we had basically three or four media sources. You know, we had ABC, NBC, CBS, and maybe the early days of PBS. But we all got basically the same information. You know, those stations were pretty, they're pretty middle of the road because, um, you know, you, your audience was likely to be across the whole board. And so you didn't want to 
you know, turn off one part of your audience. And so you basically told the news and it was considered to be inappropriate or even unethical for a news person to give their point of view um, oh, wow. because news people were there supposed to just, and now of course, 80% of what you see, maybe 90% of what you see on the news is not news at all. It's punditry. And, and, and we don't watch the same news stations anymore. So I may watch Fox and somebody else watches MSNBC. They get comp- not just completely different interpretations of the news, but completely different news. We get different mm-hmm. information. And then you feed that along with that social media, our Twitter feeds, our Facebook feeds, you know, if somebody disagrees with you, they unfriend you. So, and, and I'm not saying there aren't appropriate times to that. I've unfriended people who are really being hostile or nasty or for yeah. whom it's just, there's no point in continuing, but we do it almost at a flick of the wrist. Oh, you disagree with me, therefore you're gone. And pretty soon we're living in echo chambers of our own creation. And our tribe has this truth and this information and their tribe has this truth and that information. And, and my heavens, there's no greater example of this than to look how we're dealing with this coronavirus circumstance and, and, um, and see how, you know, there's one story on the one side about what's important and there's another story on the other side that's what's important. And state by state, we're falling along those division lines. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things you talk about is unconscious bias. And, uh, you know, there's an awareness piece that comes into this where we have to acknowledge that we do have bias and prejudice that are unconscious. So how do we kind of, I don't think we, you know, we can't move past them. We're always going to have them, but I guess introduce awareness uh, into our lives where we can at least um, make some intentional improvement. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, you know, for years we tried to do things like anti-bias trainings and we tried to get people right. to, you know, because, because I think most human beings acknowledge that bias is not a healthy thing, you know, that we want to be able to make decisions about people based on them and not because we're projecting something onto them based on their appearance or, you know, an identity of some kind. Um, when we started to do the research on unconscious bias, what we found was that, um, in fact, bias is as normal as human beings as breathing, and, and we can't survive without it because the very same mechanism of the brain um, that has us touch a stove and then remember stoves are dangerous, you don't want to touch it again, has us say, well, is that person dangerous? Why is that person dangerous? Because they remind me of somebody else who is dangerous. Um, so so we're never going to make bias go away. And, um, and that being the case, what we began to realize was the more we embrace the fact, that embrace doesn't mean that we like it, but that we acknowledge it, that we accept the fact that we have bias, the more we bring our attention and awareness to it, the more we can mitigate the impact of it. Mm-hmm. So let's say, I don't know, do you have children? By any I do too. Okay, okay, great. So so like any parent, I've had, I have four sons and six grandchildren. I'm sure like any parent, you've had one of those moments where you felt like smacking your kid upside the head. I didn't say you did it. I said you felt like, right? This is sure. a pretty natural, pretty natural reaction because we all have anger in us. We all have violence in us. And we, but something kicked in, hopefully, that said, you know what, this isn't this isn't the way I want a parent. And so instead you put the child in time out, for example, which is, which by the way, any parent knows is more for their parent than it, for the parent than it is for the child. Uh, you know, give us a few moments to cool off. And then we go back and we say, okay, Johnny or Sally or whatever your child's name is, this is how we're going to handle this. We actually interrupt our, our own reaction. We inter, there's a, there's a pause between um, the the stimulus that occurs that is whatever got us angry and then action and when mm-hmm. we pay attention we we expand that pause enough so that we can actually mm-hmm. curtail our behavior mitigate our behavior choose a behavior that's appropriate and I think the same is true for bias with human beings and that is if you know that you're uncomfortable with a particular kind of person or you have a history with people like that, um, or you know that you're being stimulated societally. You know, so for a great example, we could look at Islamophobia. We know that there's a lot of anti-Muslim um, stuff out in our society right now. Even though, you know, from a practical standpoint, most people know that there are 1.4 billion Muslims in the world, and almost none of them have done anything to harm us. 
nonetheless, the frightened mind says, better keep all of them away from me than have to worry about which ones are dangerous, right? And so if we know that that feedback is there and we notice ourselves, you know, in an airport and there's somebody in, you know, some kind of clothing that looks like it's associated with that faith and we notice ourselves getting nervous, then we can say, okay, wait a second, I know I'm getting triggered. Has this person actually done anything to me? Mm-hmm. Um, no, of course they haven't. Um, and then sometimes we can even see the absurd of it. I have absurdity of it. I have a good friend who's a scientist in Canada who's, um, who's a Sikh. And so he's turbaned, he wears a beard. And he told me the story, he said, um, in the days shortly after 9-11, his uncle, who also is turbaned and bearded Sikh, was in the airport. He was at, the, at his gate, you know, waiting for the plane. And uh, somebody walked into the uh, gate area who was a Muslim who was dressed, you know, in Muslim garb. And, um, and he said, he looked at him and he noticed that he was, he was getting really nervous about this guy being there. And then he said, I looked up and realized everybody else was looking at me. You know, so, um, so I think that there's, there's, a, there's almost an absurdity to it, but, but when we embrace that, that we aren't as rational as that we, as we thought we were, that in fact, human beings are far more rationalizing than we are rational. Mm-hmm. Then we know that about ourselves. We can have a much better job of managing it and how it impacts our behavior. And that's ultimately the most important thing, which is how does this impact our behavior towards others? Yeah, I think there, I think we're wanting to avoid that, um, that guilt and shame that comes with that. Because if I acknowledge that I'm looking, you know, at at a Muslim woman a different way, instead of, you know, I I can demonize her, but then when I turn the tables and I'm seeing why am I responding that way, there's like a level of shame and guilt that comes with that. I think we want to avoid that. (laughs) Or is there another way to look at this? Well, well, uh, that's a good point because I think shame and guilt um, actually, ironically, um, get in the way of our self-awareness. Um, you know, for a long time, the, the, the diversity space has has kind of dealt in the currency of guilt. You know, if we can make people feel guilty. Now I go back to, you know, 30 plus years ago doing this work in organizations. We used to beat people over the head with the two by four, basically, and get them to see the error of their ways, especially if they looked like this, if they looked like me. And then, uh, oh, you know, people would be really upset and that would be really cathartic for everybody. But the truth is, as many times as not, when I see people after those trainings, they'd say, well, that was okay, but don't ever make me do it again. You know, because mm-hmm. they were left contracted. Shame and guilt are contracting emotions. And they, they, they're effective. They can be effective getting people not to do bad things, but they're not very effective in increasing our uh, ability to be um, inclusive with each other because they make us more hesitant sometimes to talk about the issue. You know, Absolutely. this is why people are, this is where um, what people are calling white fragility comes from. You know, this notion that if you talk to me about anything about race, I'm in danger. You know, therefore, you know, you're accusing, being accused of being racist is worse than being racist in some people's minds. And right. so, because I'm, we don't know how to talk about the issue. And I think that there's, you know, there's plenty of uh, work on both sides of this dynamic about how do we deal with this more productively because. Ultimately, we want people not to go into shame or guilt, but to go into responsibility. So if you realize that you have a bias, you don't have to beat yourself up for it. You don't have to, it doesn't make you a terrible person. You didn't choose to learn that bias. You grew up in a culture that taught it to you. However, you do have a responsibility, just like the parent I talked about. You know, you can't help that you get angry. You're going to get angry. You're going to get frustrated as a parent. It's part of being a parent. But you have choice about how you deal with that. It doesn't mean you have to beat your child. It doesn't mean you have to shame or humiliate your child. You can learn to discipline them in constructive ways. Uh, but that takes awareness and it takes self-awareness. You realize, okay, I'm angry now. This is not the best time for me to talk to my child. Let them take five minutes. I'll take five minutes and then we'll come back to this. And we begin to learn that that's the healthy way to deal with parenting. And similarly, I think when we deal with these other issues, if we begin to realize, okay, this is a trigger point for me. I have to be careful about it. Um, then we're more likely to make 
credible and, and productive decisions. This is fascinating. This yeah. it's flew by so fast. I, yeah, no, it's hard to uh, believe. Yeah, and it, I'm, I'm so grateful. I have one final question for you, but I just want to thank sure. you for your work and taking the time to have this conversation with us because, you know, I'm, I'm 33 and outside of the school context and just being a little bit more deliberate over the past couple of years, this stuff has not been taught to me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for starting these conversations, writing these books. Where can people find you online? I grabbed this book, A Search for Belonging. Fantastic concept. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, um, uh, they can get me at howardjross.com. Um, also, um, um, our company name is Udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A. So Udarta.com is also available. And I'm also on, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook as well. So Wonderful. Wonderful. All that will be linked in the show notes. Very last question. I was wondering if we were to go back in time. I'm seeing this 15-year-old boy who's uh, just beginning this journey and probably had yeah. no idea what his life was going to entail and all Not the clue. work. No clue. All the people you were going to meet, um, the ups and the downs and everything that you've experienced over your life and your career. And I was wondering if you were to go back and sit with that young 15-year-old boy and tell him one thing that you understand now that he did not understand back then, what would that be? Well, I, I think the, the best piece of advice I ever got, which I didn't get until I was in my 30s, and I wish I had gotten when I was younger. I was um, I was working with a client, had to interview a guy who was on the board of directors of one of the companies I was working with. And he was, a, he was an early tech guy, you know, probably mm -hmm. worth a half a billion dollars or whatever. And he was in his 60s. He was like, you know, probably around my age. I'm 69, so probably around my age now. And he said, if you want to be successful in life, he says, first of all, choose what you want to do that will make you happy. He says, and then remember three things. He says, you need to be smarter than anybody else about that. And that doesn't mean inherently intelligent. It means work to know, always learning. Yeah. Second, you have to be willing to work harder than everybody else. And third, you have to be, you want to be nicer than everybody else. And that is show genuine concern for the people you're working with. And I found that that's been, you know, the best advice that I ever got. And, and you know, we can't always be all of those things, but the more we try, the better off we'll do in life. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I really want to encourage you to join me in just educating ourselves more and more about this topic. I love this idea of restoring hope for our generation. I think that's going to come through on its conversations, a lot of self-awareness and education. Again, connect with Howard Ross at howardjross.com. And before you leave, listen, 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 listen. Have you gone over to our YouTube channel yet? Head over to YouTube, type in Heather Parody or Unconventional Leaders. You'll find us and you can watch these interviews. They're unedited. You can see all the awesome nonverbal communication and a few things that don't actually make the episodes. Again, youtube.com forward slash Heather Parody and hit that subscribe button. I love you guys. I'm in your corner and I'll see you in our next episode.